Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 13. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Episode 13. Lucky 13. I hope you're feeling lucky, because we're going to need a little luck right now. How do you feel about war? Like it? Love it? Want more of it? Because this week, we were allegedly 10 minutes away from it. Trump claims that he was 10 minutes away from strikes landing against Iran. 10 minutes before he allegedly reconsidered, thought about 150 potential casualties, and pulled back. Trump tweeted his rationale for calling off the attack, and he wrote, We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked, How many will die? No question mark. I'm not going to do my Trump voice. 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. 10 minutes before the strike, I stopped it. That's what Trump wrote on Friday morning. And he continued, not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. I am in no hurry. Now, this is what he tweeted. He tweeted his rationale and his decision-making process, allegedly, around whether or not to strike Iran. If he is to be believed which, of course, he is not, he pulled us back from the brink of a war. But it's the brink of a war he hurled us toward. He's like a drunk driver without a license who rammed his car into a ditch and wants credit for calling a tow truck to pull it out. He wants a pat on the back for delaying a potential catastrophe that he created. That's some twisted shit. He's like an abusive father who says to a crying child, you want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. And then he raises his hand up like he's going to strike you. And then he stops. And he praises his own benevolence for not beating you like he normally does. This is the twisted world of Donald Trump. This is the world we live in. The world of an entire country twisting and swaying in the unpredictable and reckless emotional wake of our unstable commander-in-chief. There is no more sacred responsibility for the President of the United States than deciding whether or not to send America's sons and daughters to die in combat. Because that's what war is. Just this week, two U.S. soldiers were killed during a military operation in Afghanistan, bringing the total to nine American military fatalities there this year. They were part of a U.S. Special Forces team and killed by small arms fire in the southern Aruzagan province. They were engaged in a fierce firefight with the Taliban, with the enemy only yards apart from them at one point. Two Americans dead in Afghanistan. There is no such thing as a clean war. You go to war and people die. Only people who've never been there think otherwise. And Trump, he treats that decision like he's deciding whether to eat McDonald's or Burger King. He's the same wrecking ball of norms we've been traumatized by for the last three years. The same drunk and abusive father I've described before, who's behind the wheel of the car that is our great nation. With all of us bouncing around the back seat with no seatbelts on, our baby sister with no car seat, banging left and right and up and down. We're all terrified passengers on this wild ride. In this vehicle that is our country, that was once a Ferrari, that now he's crashed into every guardrail and every other car on the road since he was elected. 
a Ferrari no more. The Blue Book value of America is plummeting with every off-road mile he drives. And we're all in the back seat, and the way, way back seat, smashing around into the ceiling and the windows and the seats while he swerves across the double yellow lines of foreign policy, screaming, it's this great. Ah, what's it going to be? McDonald's or Burger King? You know what? I changed my mind, everyone. We're having Arby's. They got the meats. Ha 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 ha. That's what it's like. And we were all praying that Robert Mueller would be the state trooper with his radar gun, nailing our crazy stepdad for doing 90 through a 30 mile an hour school zone. We were hoping he'd drag him out of the car and put him in handcuffs or call child protective services. But he didn't. We did learn this week that Mueller will testify on July 17th before a joint session of Congress. But that might just be another speed bump. It won't be the roadblock we need to stop our station wagon of reckless bad news from hurling forward. The car is not being stopped. It's not slowing down. It's speeding up. This is the real shit. We're hurling into traffic and maybe off a cliff. That's what war with Iran could be for all of us. The American citizenry trapped in the back of this car with no AC and the windows rolled up in July. Happy summer, America. American foreign policy is being declared on Twitter in all caps and with spelling errors. It's being advised by Tucker Carlson, which is now proven to be fact and widely reported. It's being fanned by John Bolton and Tom Cotton, and it's being executed by your sons and daughters in uniform, by my friends on the battlefield, by your neighbors in attack helicopters. This show has been, and will continue to be, an examination of our great American experiment. And right now, that experiment is in great danger. Maybe more than ever since Trump was elected. Because our president has us again on the verge of starting a war in the Middle East that would be our country's next great foreign policy disaster and potentially the next world war. That's how high the stakes are. And it's just in time for July 4th. Happy birthday, America. Your abusive dad is still his same old self, even on your birthday. And instead of giving you what you need for your birthday, like a way to pay for college or an improved infrastructure or that healthcare you've been hoping for, or that reversal of the trans ban you've been praying for, or that reversal of the Muslim ban you've been wishing for, or maybe just a quiet night you'd settle for, instead of giving you what you need, making you feel loved, or just leaving you the fuck alone, he's throwing a party for himself and his power-drunk friends. Even on your birthday, America, he's making it all about him. He's having a parade for himself, using and abusing all your toys, and to hell with you and your best interest. It's all about his satisfaction and his own amusement. By the time you hear this podcast, there's a good chance American forces could already be hitting targets in Iran. That's for real now. It's bad for America. But just like that party, 
it could be bad for us and good for him. A strike on Iran, or even just stoking the drama of it, would be a great way for him to also suck the nation's attention away from the 20 Democrat candidates who spend two nights this week spraying and praying on stage, creating a circular firing squad. Democrats vacillate daily between trying to score shots on Trump and trying to score shots on their own frontrunner, Joe Biden. And Trump loves it. If he doesn't call into Fox during the debates at an attempt to snatch away the attention from MSNBC and back to himself, he'll surely be cheering on the piranha pit that is the Democratic debates. And that's what's got me angry this week and should have everyone angry. The Democrats. It's never been more true. Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. While many Democrats are already arrogantly arguing with each other and assuming they'll win, figuring out which cabinet position, which one of their third and fourth favorite candidates will take, Trump and the Republicans are already building a war chest and already fighting the wars, literally and politically. After his formal campaign kickoff this week, Trump raised nearly $25 million in one day. That's a shit ton of Big Macs to serve at the White House parties for sports teams that don't have a problem with a racist president. And compared to previous campaigns by incumbent presidents, raising $25 million in one day is a lot of money. Back in 2011, then-President Barack Obama raised $86 million during the entire first quarter of his re-election campaign. Politico called it a shock and awe showing at the time. And Trump allegedly raised almost one-third of that total in one day. That's on top of the $93 million his campaign committee had reportedly already raised as of last Friday. Now, for comparison, Bernie Sanders had raised the most out of the candidates for the Democratic nomination at a mere $21 million, less than one-third of what Trump has raised. And pardon me if I'm not excited about the socialist anti-war Bernie leading the fight to beat Trump, or any fight for that matter. You can't promise your way to winning. Hope is great, but hope is not a course of action. And it's definitely not beans and bullets for the house-by-house fight that will be the 2020 election. So the Dems better get serious real fast. Now, eventually, hopefully, the Democrats will bring their houses together to fight the night king of the White Walkers threatening the future of our great nation that is Donald Trump. But that's not a sure thing. You can always count on the Democrats to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And the way it's going, despite the fact that Joe Biden is clearly the best chance to take on Trump, Democrats will continue to hit him from behind and below all the way to the finish. Now, I do think he's the best imperfect option right now. And that's got to be the hand you play. You go to 2020 with the candidate you have, not the candidate you wish you had. And for the Dems, it's pretty clear that candidate is Biden. Deal with it. Get to planning. Stop the friendly fire and get to fighting the real enemy. I'm looking at you, Cory Booker. Your desperate attempts at attention are making Howard Schultz look good. You all want to promise free school and a green new deal and a puppy to every child in America? Great. But don't do it at the expense of getting your own tribes focused on the real enemy. It's time to rally around your Jon Snow. Like him or not. And I say that as an independent who has no love for either party but also as a person who has a pretty refined sense of the true heartbeat of America. I spent much of my life connecting with, listening to, and advocating for Americans who are above 
or below partisanship. Many independents, people beyond the coasts and the five media markets that dominate the American conversation, people who put country above party. And more than anyone else, they're open to Biden. It's a fact. That's not an endorsement. It's an analysis and a prediction. But it's also my prediction that the Dems will do all they can to beat the shit out of him before they begrudgingly accept him. In the end, he'll probably be more popular among independents than he is among Democrats, which Democrats will have a very hard time accepting because they're conflicted, emotional, and overly deliberative about everything. Democrats are like those people who are still whining about the end of Game of Thrones on Reddit and dressing up like their favorite character at Comic-Con instead of recognizing that Handmaid's Tale has already started back up or that it's summer and they should just get the fuck outside. I have a message for the Democrats. Get over it. Get over yourself. Get over your party. Stakes are too high to screw around and get overly emotional. Stay focused on the mission. Beating Trump. Everything else is secondary. And it might be even harder if he keeps raising money. And if you're trying to knock him out with your poor man's version of the political Avengers while he leads us into a campaign for president and a war with Iran. Good luck. He could be running for re-election next year while we're at war with Iran. And like it or not, that'll be a win at his back politically. It always is. Presidents at war, especially early in a war, almost always get a populist boost. It's often misguided, but often true. And they definitely get airtime. They get to control the tempo of the campaign and the news flow, something Trump has already mastered as the lemmings and the media chase after the whiff of his latest verbal fart. The 2020 election could unfold while America starts a new world war. Unlikely? Not anymore. Possible? Absolutely. But before we get there, let's go deeper into what war with Iran will really mean and how that could open us up for even greater national security threats from other places. That's the part almost nobody is covering. If we do get into an extended war with Iran, do we really think Russia, China, Al-Qaeda, and all the others who are rooting against America will just sit on the sidelines enjoying their popcorn? Nah. If we get lured into war with Iran, our other enemies will celebrate. It'll be like a Lollapalooza summer reunion concert of our worst enemies. My enemy's enemy is my friend, right? And Vladimir Putin is right now cheering for an American war with Iran like Toronto Raptors fans were cheering for Kevin Durant to get hurt and hoping for the same result. Putin and Kim Jong-il and, and Bashar al-Assad, they'll all be united and cheering for our pain like the Romans at the Colosseum and Gladiator. It'll be like a Lollapalooza summer reunion concert of our worst enemies. If you're not concerned, you should be. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. So in this episode, we're going deeper on the stakes, the blowbacks, and the massive potential costs of war with Iran, with a guy who's been breaking it down for America in the public only recently. Malcolm Nance is a decorated military veteran, an astute analyst, and a truth teller. He's also a super cool guy, super fascinating, and a true patriot. Malcolm served in the U.S. Navy for 20 years. As a U.S. Navy specialist in naval cryptology, 
He was involved in numerous counterterrorism, intelligence, and combat operations. He's an expert in intelligence and counterterrorism. He was an instructor in the SEER school, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, training and teaching Navy and Marine Corps pilots and air crews how to survive as a prisoner of war. He helped initiate the Advanced Terrorism Abduction and Hostage Survival Course of Instruction. Malcolm also took part in combat operations that occurred after the 1983 Beirut barracks bombings. He was peripherally involved in the 1986 United States bombing of Libya. He served on the USS Wainwright during Operation Praying Mantis, which was an attack in April 1988 by U.S. forces within Iranian territorial waters in retaliation for Iranian mining of the Persian Gulf during the Iran-Iraq War and subsequent damage to an American warship. So he's been engaged with the Iranians in combat. He was also aboard uh, during the sinking of the Iranian missile boat Joshun in 1988. He served on the USS Tripoli during the Gulf War and assisted during Bosnian airstrikes. You may know him from his many appearances on TV and most often on MSNBC, but don't hold that against him. And strangely and amazingly, he and I once had lunch at Tavern on the Green with the great Ron Perlman from Sons of Anarchy and our fireball guest from episode three. More on that later. But stakes is high, and we're going to break it down with the best guy I could find, a guy who is also himself in the media and online at the point of attack for this and some of the other most important issues facing America. Malcolm's another important, iconic, and inspiring American, the kind of guest I'll feature on Angry Americans, the kind of guest who shaped what America is and will shape what it will be going forward. So before the bombs drop on Tehran, he'll drop some knowledge bombs with us. Your latest full-spectrum attack of the four eyes is inbound. Strikes of integrity are on the way. Tactical formations of information are inbound. Forces of impact are marching forward. And a water-bound torpedo of inspiration is launching out of the tube. So sharpen your K-bar of focus. Strap on your Kevlar of healthy skepticism. Load up your magazine of attention. And step off into the darkness of war. This is not a time to be fucking around. Let me see your war face. Let me see your war face. Sir, you got a war face? Ah, that's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit, you didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. America is on the verge of more war. And there might be nothing we can do now to stop it. But we can prepare for it and for what comes after. And that starts with understanding where we're at. Consider this your intel briefing. This is Angry Americans on War. So welcome to the War Room. Welcome to Angry Americans, Episode 13. Welcome to the heat of summer. We are again in the classic car club, Manhattan. Our country is on the verge of war. Uh, July 4th is almost here and shit's getting real. And I thought we had to connect with one of the people that I think is one of the more fascinating, interesting, real people that I know. Uh, and given what's going on in the world and just because I love talking to you, 
there's nobody that I want to get on, on this show more right now than the great Malcolm Nance. So thank you for being here, man. My pleasure, bro. You're like a character from a movie. Like trucks are starting up while we're talking. So, you know, this is real life shit, right? No, there are no guys like me in the movies because how many black people do you see in spy movies or, you know, that are in intelligence roles? I can name them all right now. Denzel Washington in Safe House, which has, by the way, the worst waterboarding scene known to man. All right. I, I ran the last I ran the last authorized waterboard in the Department of Defense before they pulled it. Right. After the CIA program. That's where it was taken from. My school in Coronado, California. Okay. So there was that movie. Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington. Morgan Freeman in Reds. He played the retired CIA guy. Right. Okay. Remember that one? I'm running out of them. There was another one which was about a CIA guy that no one can remember because it was so unrealistic that no one would watch that film. So, And then Killmonger... In, in Black Panther, he played a special JSOC SEAL guy, right? And that's a reach, right? That, no. No? There's a couple of SEALs I know okay. right now who are like him. Okay. Uh, you know, including one that's uh, living out, that's uh, in Hollywood in California. So, But they just don't exist, you know, and people don't talk to us. And we're also in positions, as you know, when you're in those positions of trust, you don't talk. Um, but I've literally had people come up to me and say, oh, that's all bullshit. Everything you've done is a lie. And it's like, uh, you know, we have a bunch of crazy right-wingers that came after me a couple of years ago because they somehow got the impression that I was a member of ISIS. Hmm. And so I got like 50 death threats, you know, boom, all from Breitbart. And, uh, you know, so one of these guys, Crazy Jack Posobiec, remember this kid? He's the kid who did Pizzagate. Okay. He was a Navy intelligence officer, reserve, individual reserve, who got his clearance pulled after that. Uh, But he and his buddies went and pulled my DD-214, my record of service, uh, and had it, you know, FOIA'd it and got it put up on the internet. And then I, you know, so I actually, somebody called me. With your social and everything else on it? They 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 had redacted all of, it was like blank, right? Okay, okay. You know, except for my, my awards and my schools and my commands that I was assigned to. But, you know, when you're a cryptologist, all it's going to say is assigned to a place in Spain. So break break it down for us. For folks who maybe don't yeah. know your work, oh, okay. don't know you from tele, can you give us a, a summary of your background yeah. and your and your experience so, as you're able, yeah. right, to, what, to what extent you can share or comfortable sure. sharing? Well, my background is uh, I spent 20 years in Navy, Naval Intelligence, and I was a cryptologic intelligence collector, uh, Arabic interpreter, which means that my job was to collect um, intelligence that came about in either electronic form or when tasked in human form. And of course, it's all in a foreign language, Arabic and, you know, all the dialects. So I'm a graduate of the Defense Language Institute twice, basic, intermediate and, uh, and advanced um, overseas programs. Uh, and my job was to do whatever it is we do. And I worked directly for uh, the National Security Agency, and then was seconded out to other agencies as required. So I spent 20 years on ships, submarines, airplanes, but I was mainly a sand sailor. So I was ashore all the time. And at one point in my career, when I was assigned to NSA, I was seconded out to other agencies. And the first time that I was tasked, they said, hey, we need a black guy that speaks Arabic. 
Hmm. And so when you think about it, you go, that's a very specific request, right? Because right. we have hundreds of people who are these fluent, you know, PhD level fluent Arabic speakers and, and academics and some of the, the most brilliant minds that ever existed since Alan Turing. But they're just the wrong pigmentation for infiltrating certain environments. So uh -huh. if you want to collect in North Africa or you want to collect in the Sahel, right, the sub-Saharan part of the of the of the desert or Sudan or Somalia or even Saudi Arabia you're just not going to walk in there with a guy who's just graduated from Brigham Young right <laughs> and that's not a joke because there's no. a lot of guys yeah. but you know I went to Brigham Young for a dialect course and uh, the CIA recruiter came out there and there was a, a line a block long Huh. Because those guys are eminently clearable, easy to get their clearances. They all speak foreign languages. They're devout patriots. But they're just some missions where, you know, it's not just that we collect, you know, electronically or, or physically. You've got to actually walk from the airport right. <laughs> to your hotel right, right. without people going, hey, look at that six foot two, blonde haired, blue eyed rugby player, right, right? Right, right? Special operations can't do everything. So there is this subset of the intelligence community and special operations, which carries out these special collection missions. And so you're a rare guest who um, I, I believe is an incredible patriot. You've, you've sacrificed and led for this country on many different fronts, but you have the, the rare uh, experience of battling ISIS and the Iranians and Breitbart, right? Yeah. So you, <laughs> you, you, you've been in, in, in the, the, the guerrilla. The Iranians were easier, the, by the way, okay. than Breitbart. The Iranians were easier than Breitbart. Oh, uh, yeah, by far. You know, those guys over there are rabid uh, because unlike the Iranians, they have a, they, their ideology is corrupted on the basis of real facts, which could give them the, the worldview that the rest of us see with our own eyes. Whereas the Iranians are living within a culture and a religion, so I can give them a pass. Mm. So, so let's, I, I want to stay on that, right? right? As we sit here right now, by the time this podcast drops, we could have American strikes on Iran, right? right? The, the president claimed that uh, he was 10 minutes away from launching strikes. Who knows if we can believe anything he says, but we are probably closer to the precipice of, of a new war with Iran than we've been since he's been elected, maybe ever. Sure. Break it down for us. Like, where are we right now, Malcolm? How close are we to war? And if there is war, what does it look like? Okay. Well, let me take those in, in pieces and, and give you a, a little more background. Um, I worked the Persian Gulf mission for years, um, which was carrying out collection operations there, supporting the Iran-Iraq war, you know, tasking. Uh, when the tanker war started in the mid-1980s, uh, I supported those operations. I actually went to the Persian Gulf uh, and um, went to the Persian Gulf and, in fact, uh, was involved in direct naval combat with the Iranian Navy in uh, Operation Praying Manis. Uh, what we were involved in was called the Battle of Siri Island, uh, where an Iranian warship uh, was tasked to intercept our surface action group. We were busy blowing up their only really productive oil oil platform there, uh, Siri Island oil platform, uh, which we turned into Siri Lighthouse because mm. it took a year for it to be put out. Mm. And then while we were there, some small boats started chasing us. We had a small boat skirmish. And then this guided missile um, uh, patrol craft with the last remaining American-built 
Harpoon anti-ship missile in their inventory came down with uh, came down to sink us, and it was a very close thing. In fact, uh, we we closed within 13 miles of us. And a quick aside, you're gonna get a little naval history here. Please, you know, every once in a while, a phrase pops up in in military history or naval history, um, like "Don't give up the ship," or right. you know, um, you know. Things like that, or I have not yet begun to fight. I actually was present for what will be the most, a most amazing phrase that will someday be in gold letters at the Naval Academy. Uh, it was the captain of our ship. I was on the USS Wainwright, and the captain's name was Chandler. And Captain Chandler, as we were closing on the Iranian vessel, uh, with, you know, without any warning, he came onto the bridge to bridge between him and the Iranian captain, and he said, unidentified Iranian warship, stop your engines, abandon your ship, I intend to sink you. Wow. And I thought, holy cow, this is going up on a wall. Yeah, the Iranians fired a missile at us. Last remaining harpoon missile, it tracked good. (laughs) It was coming down on us, we blew chaff. Uh, which is a an, a uh, a radar spoofing device. We uh, blew. We just broadbanded all of our electronic warfare. We threw the ship over into a hard turn. Uh, we turned on our automatic Gatling gun systems, which is the first time it had ever been done in 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 real life. Close in weapon system C Whiz, right. which is a terrifying thing if you ever hear it in in action. It didn't shoot because the missile missed us by 150 feet. Wow. And it was between the hull of the ship and the range that the gun would shoot. So if it had fired and it had hit that missile, it would have blown us in half. And, um, and then we just wailed on that ship and obliterated it. Uh, and then as we left after, with our first naval kill since the Vietnam War, um, we got engaged by an Iranian F-4 Phantom and we shot that down too. So we weren't playing games after So that. you sunk the ship and you took sank down a plane ship, along the way. Blew up a platform, <laughs> sank a ship, chased ball so gamers, is this, and, and shot so, down so, an aircraft. So breaking this down, Malcolm, is, is this what war would look like with Iran now? Well, that's what naval combat would look like with, with Iran. I think that um, my experience in the first Gulf War is closer to what it would look like if we had to go into ground warfare to a certain extent, only without the gigantic surrender. Um, naval combat at that time was, was, was pretty limited because we had complete, you know, warfighter domination. We had the waters belonged to us. The reason we did that, um, combat operation is because they used asymmetric warfare against us. We, to this day, do not know how the Iranians laid a minefield right in the middle of our surface ship pathway that the, that. Uh, that made the USS Samuel B. Roberts hit that mine and almost blow that ship in half. And only through the efforts of the crew did they save that ship. And my ship was the responding vessel, and it took us like eight hours of hard steaming. Hard steaming means your ship is shuddering, right? Because you're going as whatever the maximum is, and then drive right up to the edge of a minefield and then transit to get people off of a sinking ship. Right. That's why we wailed on the Iranians, because they deserved it. Everything up to that point 
was the Iranians attacking tankers, Iraqi-bound tankers, Kuwaiti-bound tankers, but it didn't lead to open warfare. So the, the Iranians learned from that lesson. We sank one of their frigates, we sank their missile patrol boat, we took their last remaining missile out of their inventory, we chased all sorts of little high-speed craft. They decided that they needed a better defensive strategy in layers. So after 1988, they spent the next two decades buying every anti-ship missile China could sell them. And they have hundreds, if not thousands, in their inventories. And they have them, and in, in, in they put them ashore, in shore batteries, on high-speed Iranian Revolutionary Guard coach craft, on naval vessels, launched from aircraft. And these are not jokes. These are missiles that are ship killers. And... Um, they now have decided that their swarming strategy wouldn't just be with these, you know, Chuck Norris bottle rocket boats and heavy machine guns. Those will come in last. They're going to come out with waves of anti-ship missiles designed to overcome, you know, what hit them before, which is a three-ship surface action group, and to defeat our anti-missile capability and get one or two systems kills so that the little small boats can come out and swarm around you with video cameras and show, you know, those 105 millimeter rockets, 20, 30, or 40 of them finishing you off. And that's how the naval side of things could unfold. That's how the naval side of what things about, will unfold. Okay, and what about the air and the ground? Well, the air side's a little more cut and dry because the Iranian Air Force, uh, the Iranian Air Force was pretty rudimentary when we, uh, when we fought the Battle of Syria Island. Uh, as a matter of fact, that Phantom that came out, it had tasking to find us. And it wasn't hard because their biggest oil platform was a giant, you know, cylinder burning, you know, smoke clouds up to 30,000 feet. So they, all they had to do is go, oh, look, which is a burning oil platform. Ships should be nearby. And uh, I mean, he came right at us. But we had extremely long range missiles at that time. We don't, we don't have them as long. Now ours go up to about 60 miles. But at that time, we had these very long-range SM-6 missiles, and we could shoot out to 97 miles. So while this guy, he, as soon as he broke water, you know, we know what he's doing. He's coming our way, and as soon as he broke water, we were just like, missiles away. We're not even going to discuss it with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course, all of his radar, you know, anti-radar things are going off because we're burning a, a hole through him like a laser with our radar guidance systems. Uh, and then we just hit him. And, he, and he, he didn't break up right away. He actually went back to land, and then they ejected and the plane crashed. But that's, how, that's only one aircraft. There were only three aircraft that day. The next time, it's going to be a national-level effort. And one component of this, this is the Iraqis in the first Gulf War had a deal to take all of their aircraft from Iraq and land them in Iran. Right. This is MiG-29s. This is SU-30 fitter, you know, SU-24 fitter, um, SU-24 bombers, um, and some Mirage F-1 EQ-5, very good anti-ship aircraft that can carry Exocet missiles, now carry Chinese missiles. And when the Iran-Iraq, when we finished Desert Storm, Iran was like, we didn't receive any aircraft. <laughs> they took like 70 aircraft right. and just did not return them to Iraq. Right, right, right. And now those are in their inventory. So they have the capacity to put up with us for a couple of days in harassment fire. But, you know, we're pretty good. The problem is Iran is an enormous nation. Right. 
And in Desert Storm, we had total air dominance after about two weeks. Because you can't hit every base. You can't get every runway. You can't get every plane. And we had kills. They had kills where they put up MiG-29s and, you know, and MiG-25s and shot down U.S. aircraft. You know? So the Iranians have a good pilot base. They have lots of small aircraft. They still fly the F-5 Tiger. Um, they still have the F-14 in uh, their own version of the you know, long-range missiles. So that'll be more of a battle. Mm-hmm. But if we go in there with the belief that we will have complete dominance in the first day, that's just an idiot talking. And, and that's the problem. So that's the sea. And that's then the we sea get to the air. air. Now we get to the nitty gritty, right? You know, and you don't and having been on the ground in Iraq, I have a small taste of what that looks like. But compared to uh, Iraq, you know, Iraq's going to look like child's play compared, yeah. compared to what we face well, uh, potentially on the ground in Iran. So break that down, if you can, please. Um, and, 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 you know, especially for folks who may not be as sophisticated on the nomenclature and the language, okay. you know, in, in terms of scope and scale and cost, you know, what kind of a, of a ground force would we be facing? How many people could die? You know, in my, in my 20 years, uh, or actually I should say 20 plus years, I've been engaged against, I engaged or was engaged by Iranians and their proxies three times. Um, the first was in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, when their Amal militia, you know, blew up with suicide bombers, the Marine barracks, uh, while I was there. And in fact, I was, my ship uh, at the time, we fired off over 500 rounds of five inch gun, uh, at Iranian proxies in the Shuf mountains there. Now just think about that. There, we were shooting so much. They went off of battle stations and they were just like, yeah, gun crews just stay on and keep shooting. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's almost, it got almost boring. So that was in the early 80s. Then I had carried out intelligence collections operations against Hezbollah on and off for a very long time, almost four years, trying to find hostages in Lebanon. Then I started working collection against the Iranians themselves and the Iraqis in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I had this direct warfare with the Iranian Navy and Iranian Air Force. And then I went to Iraq, too. And I was, uh, when I first got there, I was in Basra, which is the south. And the south is exclusively Shia Muslim. There's two types of Muslim. There's Shia and there's Sunnah. Most Muslims in the Muslim world are Sunnah, uh, 85% of them. Shia are that little 15%. But Iraq is 75% Shia. Iran is 100% Shia. You know, the eastern side of the Arabian Gulf, eastern Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, that's like 80% Shia also. It has been historically Shia since the 8th century. So those people stick together on the basis of their religion. So when we invaded Iraq, we unleashed, you know, Saddam was holding down this pro-Iranian population of 20 million people. Right. And you and I, when we were in Iraq, we were fighting the Sunnah Muslims who were the elite leadership of the country and the commando force. That was only five million people. Uh, I wrote a book called The Terrorists of Iraq. I actually wrote it when I was in Baghdad, and it, it's since been republished. You could only buy it at Camp Victory PX, by the way. <laughs> okay. But it was a full study of every terrorist group in Iraq in an unclassified 
you know, unclassified book. Right. We estimated there were only 80,000 actual insurgents part-time. There were only 15 to 20 full-time insurgents and only six to 8,000 Al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgents at any one given time. And of course, we were wiping them out by the bushel load. Uh, the problem with this is when we made the strategic error of instead of concentrating on Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Iraqi insurgents who belonged to Saddam's former commando force, the Saddam Fedayeen, I, I recall the very day that the commanding general in, um, in Karbala decided that the Shia cleric, Muqtada al-Sadr, the heir to the Sadr caste, they were like the, the religious royalty right. of Iraq. Right. And they were revered in Iraq and in Iran. And they decided, I remember reading the report where he said, Muqtada al-Sadr is just a criminal and a punk. And I thought, this is bad. Right. You are about to unleash the other 80% of the people in this country on us. And they tried to arrest him. And suddenly, these pro-Iran militias came out of nowhere. And the first battles in Karbala, Najaf, Al you know, and Nasiriyah and Basra started breaking out against U.S. Yeah. forces. He became a legend instantly. Overnight. Yeah. And, and yeah. well, this guy was revered. All we had to do was let him do whatever he was doing and then maintain the rest of the country. Right. That is when Iraq almost went over to Iran completely. And now their ties are such they needed America to help maintain combat capacity against ISIS and al-Qaeda, but their religious and cultural ties are to Iran. So by us invading Iran, we gave Iran a new ally. And Iran's ally, you know, a little personal story. When I was in Abu Dhabi, I was living in Abu Dhabi, um, you know, we had a family issue that involved an Iraqi bodybuilder. And an Iraqi bodybuilder. Bodybuilder. Of which and there I, are many. Yeah, this, I, I didn't this is like For folks this who guy. haven't been to the Middle East. I didn't like this or guy. Or haven't, was... haven't been to Iraq. There's actually a very passionate, Huge. Uh, significant, serious bodybuilding community. One I had no idea until I got to Iraq, and I find out how serious Iraqis are about bodybuilding. And let me tell you, they are, they are champions, man. Very one serious. Of, one of my bodyguards uh, who, who worked for me is now, I got him back to the United States, and he's up in Portland, Oregon. He runs a bodybuilding gym. I bet he These does guys very love well. Because what else I did you have to do well. under Saddam, right? Right, just right. Lift weights and break rocks. So anyway, so you've got we this had person. this situation in this bodybuilder. I needed to get this guy out of the country because he was bragging that he was a pro-Iranian Shia militia man from Iraq and that he had killed U.S. soldiers and everything. So, you know, when I got this guy, when I reported this guy to the police and to the embassy so that he wouldn't get on the terror watch list, he went to Damascus, Syria to fight in a pro-Iranian Iraqi Shia militia against you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so you, you can see that Iran's proxies stem all the way from southern Lebanon through Hezbollah, Iranian forces and Rev Guard forces in Syria. Then that border connects to Iraq and that border right. connects to Iran and that border connects to Afghanistan and it connects to Western Pakistan. And there is literally a giant letter C, a crescent that goes from Yemen jumps over the Red Sea, continues at the Golan Heights, and goes all the way around Iran and reaches almost back to Yemen. 
right? That's what we are dealing with now. And Donald Trump seems to think, you know, it was Tom Cotton who said, you know, it'll take no more than two strikes. That be they better be nukes. Right. And then what you're going to have is you're going to have people fighting in a nuclear environment with sticks against you. Remember I said that there were only 15 to 20,000 full-time Iraqi insurgents and that the population was 5 million? Right. Iran's population is 85 million people. They are very intelligent. They are very well-educated. They know more about American politics than any of us will ever know about Iranian politics. Um, they do want freedom and they want all these other things, but they also want respect their culture. And if someone invades or attacks Iran, they will rally around the government. They have a million-man standing army. They have a three-million-man insurgent militia force called the Pazduran. Um, they have a commando force of half a million Revolutionary Guards Corps, Corps men who are the core cadre of the, the, of the military-aged men. Every year, every year, the military-aged men population of 18 to 30s, 18 to 30, is 30 million men. And they have the rifles to arm those men. So they could mobilize 40 million men in a matter of months. They that, can get online with a million overnight. That's what I wanted to get into, Malcolm. That's what I wanted to focus on on this show. This is why I think it's the most important story in America and maybe in the world. We are now not just on the, on the verge of potential strikes with Iran. We are on the verge of the closest thing to a world war we've seen in our time. Fair to say? If the Saudis it, get involved, if the Israelis get involved, who knows what the Russians will do? This can overflow for decades into dozens of places. Don't be bringing those two countries up because but now you're talking, you you're talking about very serious uh, incidents. But, but do you agree the stakes are that high? The stakes can be extremely high. I'll tell you a, a, a really quick story because this, this cuts to it. So in the first Gulf War, I was the chief of cryptologic intelligence. My job was all the guys who, who did cryptology under the, in, under the intelligence command for Commander Middle East Force, right? And I was, one guy actually called me a visiting fireman because I was always calling alarm to everything. But I had already had 10 years in this rodeo, right? right. I had seen the Iranians mine the entire Gulf. Uh, we, uh, you know, captured an Iranian minesweeper at Seal Storm, the ship, captured an Iranian minesweeper. I'd been in direct combat with them. I had seen the Iraqis strike a U.S. warship with two Exocet missiles, the USS Stark, to the point where it was my job to go up on this ship when the Iraqis would come down and call the pilots and tell them, hey, you're too close to us here. Go around to us there. It's called deconfliction so that they wouldn't sink U.S. ships. Uh, you know, I worked in a lot of different little missions that just required somebody who could speak Arabic. One of the things that terrified me the most in my career was a 30-minute block of time in the run-up to Desert Storm. And I was aboard the, the flagship, and my job, I had been seeing all these indications that the Iraqis were mining the ever-living hell out of the northern Persian Gulf. But the staff that were there they had never seen this before, so they didn't know what the activities looked like. So there's a photograph of a landing craft 40 miles into the middle of the ocean with its ramp down and all these objects under a tarpaulin. And I'd go, mining, and they were like, there's no real evidence of that. And I'm like, 
Why is a who puts the ramp down in the middle of the ocean, right? Later on, I would find, I would prove by going ashore and finding the map of their minefields. 3,000 mines they laid. But in this particular instance, the first Scud missile launched in Desert Storm. And I remember the warning coming from, you know, a national command authority saying, we have a missile launch, ballistic missile launch, Western Iraq. And I was like, ooh, here it is. Game's on, baby. That thing's going to take a course of like 180 to go to Riyadh or 150 to go to Bahrain. That's the bearings from, from this is what you've trained this for. air base. Yeah, this and I was just like, for. Scud launch. Here it comes. Okay. You know, I know all about Scuds. Uh-huh. And um, I was like, okay, where's it going to go? So these ballistic missiles go into space, by the way, just below the edge of space. And then they fall back ballistically it's like throwing a rock in the air but they calculate where that rock is going to come down and then i realized after about three minutes that the bearing was not 180 the bearing was like 225 to the southwest i was like what that was that's wrong and i remember these officers who by the way officers don't do the work right Officers sign off on my work. Okay. And so I'm analyzing this ballistic missile launch, and I, and I whip out, a, in my mind, I got a mental map in the Middle East. I pulled out a map and a, and, a, and, a, uh, and a pencil, and I drew a line on 220, and it was Haifa, Israel. And I said, hey, hey, I, I shut up everybody in the room. I said, hey, this is not good. And they were like, what's the matter? I go, that thing's going to Israel. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, the Israelis won't do anything. I go, you don't understand what's happening here. If that thing has a chemical weapon in it, in 15 minutes, it's going to impact. And if it has a chemical weapon in it, in an hour, a nuke is going back to Baghdad. We could be on the cusp of a nuclear war right now. And suddenly everybody was like, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good. And so we literally dialed up Israeli television, right? And we were waiting for the scud to hit. And the air raid warnings go off on Israeli TV. And then, boom, this thing blows up in Haifa. And it's high explosive. Which is a relief. We're sad. We're relieved that the thing was high explosive. Because had it been chemical and 100 or 200 or 1,000 Israelis die from a chemical weapon, the Israelis would have nuked Baghdad. That is always a possibility when you're talking about a war in the Middle East and a country like Iran. Iran, by the way, by the way they have chemical and biological weapons, and they have the ballistic missile systems that can loft those weapon systems to Saudi Arabia and, 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 and beyond. Amman, Jordan, if they wanted to hit them. So, and they have ballistic missiles that might even be able to, to reach Israel. So whenever we say, oh, we're going to do something, we're going to hit the Iranians, a chain of events could easily lead to where if they believe that, you know, the United States or Saudi Arabia is allowing Israel to fly through their airspace, and, you know, who knows, the only way that you can dig out their atomic weapons program is with a tactical nuclear weapon. Because even if we had full air dominance, you just can't get all those tunnels. You're right. And there's only one way to get rid of it for sure. Right. So this is the calculus that I don't see anyone in media 
or definitely no one in the Trump administration thinking. They think that they're going to get some quick victory like blowing up an empty Syrian airfield because they called an hour in advance and told them and the Russians to leave. That's not Iran, all right? It will be, you know, sun's out, guns out, you know, and fight will be on. So happy summer, everybody. Yeah. This, well, is, this, is, this is the real shit that's happening in our world right now, happening in America. And having you on the show right now is urgent. And I, part of why I was excited to have you on the show, Malcolm, is because there's no commercials. Some of this stuff takes time to explain. You don't get a chance to do that when you're on MSNBC in a quick hit before a mattress commercial, right? Yeah. So we've got to unpack these ideas. But can you turn your focused eye on something specific that's been in the news, which I almost don't want to focus on because it's in part feeding this, this narrative that the administration has created. But when you saw this grainy video <laughs> that was allegedly Iranians placing a mind or removing a mind, it's gone all around, right? Uh, Trump retweeted video, right? And we have right now a freeze at the Pentagon. They're not doing press conferences. We're not getting briefings like we used to get in the Gulf War about what's happening or even casualty figures. Oh, yeah. This is a whole new normal. But on a very basic level, to your trained eye, what did you see? Well, I can tell you precisely what I saw. I saw half of the intelligence picture. And I, I, I spent a lot of time m monitoring the day-to-day -day activities of Iranian and Saudi and, and Kuwaiti and Iraqi activities of their armed forces. And so there is a normative scale of how they behave, right? Everybody, you know, and I've worked with special operations, I've worked with special boat squadrons. So the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is just a special boat squadron with 1,500 tiny boats, right? with anti-ship missiles, rockets, and machine guns. That's how many we would have to deal with. But they're spread out all along the coast of a country. So the activity that you would be thinking that would precipitate the grainy video that you see, there are things which must occur. So if the contention is, is that the Iranians went out to oil tankers after they left port, and in the middle of the night, went alongside and put up explosive charges way up midway in the boat, then these activities must occur. Number one, there had to have been a decision-making process which said, we need to exercise some sort of retaliation. Uh, that decision-making process of let's do something has to be ordered and passed down to the Revolutionary Guard Command. There's one place that you could gain intelligence. Because sometimes the CIA and other agencies are very, very good at buying people and things which can get out of hand. I've literally seen that, where someone has put down a package of intelligence that I could only describe as unobtainium, right? You look at it, you're like, unobtainium. you own the Minister of Defense? You know, it would be like somebody coming up with the Pentagon's war plan for, for Guinea-Bissau, right? Okay. Just okay. some obscure war plan that should never leave a vault and somebody puts it on your table and says, hey, man, that's going to happen in three days. Right. And you're right. like, you guys can be good despite what the movies say when you want to be good. And I know how that's done, by the way. Yeah. This is some brother goes into a room who isn't a guy from Brigham Young, right? 
And it's someone who's Iranian or kind of, and they just, I call it this. I call it the, the gold bar standard where you walk and you go, so you're offering this to me. And the guy will say, yes, I need all this. And then you just go, I'm going to start putting gold bars on the table. And you start telling me when you can't carry enough of these gold bars out. That's why I'm going to pay you. And you just overwhelm them with the amount of money that they're going to get. Right. And then you say, oh, yeah, and you're going to move to Los Angeles and all your kids are coming too. Right? That's how you get crazy right, intelligence. Right, right. So if this decision was made and it was passed to the Revolutionary Guards, you have an opportunity to acquire that information. Then once it gets to Revolutionary Guard Command, you were in the military, you know how it goes, those orders have to go out. Even if they're secret orders and they go by courier, things are going to occur that are observable, hearable, and detectable. So, for example, the, when I actually got a medal for predicting the invasion of Kuwait in 19, uh, 1990, and, the re and I was at a training school in West Texas, and I was watching all of the general day-to-day -day intelligence. And two what we call significant intelligence indicators occurred. The first one was all these, you know, like three divisions of Iraqi army go into the desert near the Kuwaiti border. And the Iraqis are like, oh, we're just doing a training exercise. Then like 10 million tons of ammunition was being broken out through every weapons depot in Iraq. No one takes the entire war stocks of right. ammunition right. on a trading exercise. Right. So same thing with Iran. Yep. Rev guard boats suddenly start weapons lockers open up. You can see that right. when the so doors you've are seen open. this before. You're like, yeah. you know, the the Tony Romo of warfare here. You're right. calling the play before before it happens. But going back to the video, Malcolm, what did you see? Well, what did uh, you think I, it was? What I'm showing you is what yeah. we didn't see. Right. We didn't see... See, we don't know what it was. We didn't see the special operations guys with their wetsuits right. getting onto a craft at night. Right. Right. We should have been watching for right. that. Right. And then, how can you get alongside that tanker unseen? They have watch standers right. who are there, left right. and right, right. Who, who have to see to make sure there's no collisions, who watch the little radar. Yep. Yep. Even if it was swimmers. Swimmers don't do well on a, you know, 50,000 metric ton super tanker moving at seven knots. You still got to be pretty good. If it's a mini sub, you are going to be U.S. capable, right, in, right. in your right. skills. So however it happened, I don't know. Maybe one of the crewmen was paid to do it. I don't know. Here's what I do know. The tanker blew up at 0100 at, no, 0312 at night, the first tanker, right? It skyrockets. Now, in the middle of the night, 20 miles off the coast of Iran, there is an explosive plume that's like 400 feet in the sky, right? So, of course, everyone on the Iranian coast is going to go, hey, man, what just blew up off our coast? Even if they did it, the people who are in that town, right, which is called uh, Bandar, Bandari Jash, Josh, they're not going to know that. They're going to respond normally, like, Let's get our Coast Guard boats and our Rev Guard boats and go out and Let's see what that see is. Let's go see what's going on. Yep. Two hours later, Rev Guard boats and a patrol craft go out into that area. This is my problem with this timeline. The Pentagon kept saying Iranian boats were operating in the vicinity of these tankers. Yes, two hours after they blew up, 20 miles away from their base. So if I'm in Coronado, so California, it could very well be. It's going to be the Coast QRF. Guard. Yeah. It's going to be private yachts. It's going yeah. to be the local television yeah. channel. Yeah. You know, everyone's going to respond to that. 
What you saw with them taking the package off occurred 10 hours after the explosion. So now you've determined that off your coast are these tankers. You've removed the crews off of one of them, and then you send out EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, to render safe any unexploded ordnance. Even if it was Iranian, it's only common right, sense right. that the local guys are going to go, well, wait a minute, that super tanker there could blow up again and spill a billion gallons of oils all over our shore. That doesn't mean that the Iranians didn't do it. Right. It just means what we observed was the post-incident response. All right? It doesn't and mean... so on a very basic level, it's incomplete information. Completely incomplete. And, 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 and it, in this case, in the rare scenario that we're operating in, our commander-in-chief feels like it's conclusive and asserts that it's conclusive and tweets that it's conclusive and on some levels is, is starting to make a case for war that's been underway for some like like John Bolton for for years. So he, if you want a war, you can create a war, right? And, sure. and, that, and that, whether it's Gulf of Tonkin or this this tanker incident, so uh, there's a lot to digest already in what we've covered here. But let's let's take a step back because okay. this is angry Americans. I say there's a lot to be angry about. <laughs> sure. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Um, you you actually this this fun confluence of events. You and I actually had a lunch once with Ron Perlman. Yeah. Who yeah. was on this show Hellboy. a couple episodes ago? Hellboy. Oh yeah, Ron came. So in? he was on the show. He was on fire. He was amazing. <laughs> uh, if, if you're listening, you haven't heard that episode. Go back and, and listen to it. But also imagine me and Ron Perlman and Malcolm Nance having a conversation like this at Tavern on the Green. <laughs> so like literally, fancy people in Manhattan are scared shitless because they hear Malcolm talking about this stuff. They hear Perlman talking about Lord knows what. Usually about. Uh, Trump's penis size or something and I'm <laughs> frankly just a pedestrian but you guys both have, have a righteous uh, involvement and concern for where our country sits right? right and I share that with you given all you know given all you see Malcolm Nance what makes you angry oh what makes me angry I'll, I'll tell you right now um, it sounds cliche when I say it because I've said it a few times on air since uh, the, the one thing I forgot to tell you is that you guys see me on MSNBC all the time. I'm the terrorism analyst at MSNBC and the Russia analyst, Trump-Russia right. analyst. What offends me the most, what makes me really shaking angry is, is some of the horrible, horrible events that deeply, deeply offend me because they are dishonoring this nation. Uh, my grandfather and my granduncle fought in World War I. My grandfather was a stevedore, and, and my granduncle was a teamster, which means he moved teams of horses. And they would go out together, out to the battlefield. They would take ammo out, bodies back, right? Because that's what they had the black soldiers doing for the most part. Uh, as many black soldiers there as we have Marines today. Mm. And these guys served thanklessly, uh, by Southerners who even their officers constantly referred to them by the N-word. And they went to France and they served this nation. And Donald Trump would not go to a cemetery where 15 of my grandfather's comrades are buried, black uh, soldiers, um, because it was raining. He has no honor. He has no sense of honor. He is, he is just parroting and mimicking what he believes his followers do. And I don't 
understand former service members who think Donald Trump is the should be the commander in chief. He's a five times draft dodger. He lied about getting bone spurs. You know, he's interviewed. He couldn't remember which foot had the bone spurs. Right. I ran to the armed forces. My dad was 15 when he joined in World War II and, and went to the Pacific. His father fought in World War I, my grandfather, and then joined up again in World War II. My great-great-grandfather fought in, world, in the Civil War, and my great-great-granduncle fought in the Civil War and the Indian Wars. There's been a Nance in the military to this day. My niece, by the way, was attacked by an Iranian proxy with an anti-ship missile off of Yemen a year and a half ago. And she's actually in, in the Gulf now. I won't say which ship she's on. But we, we take this job very seriously. We take our patriotism very seriously. But I hold no truck for an idiot, okay? This man is so stupid, and he dishonors this nation all the time. It offends me. It offends me. If I was in his presence, I, you know, I'm an old Navy chief, okay? And, it, you know, unlike most other services, a chief in the Navy is a god. When you transition to do E7, E8, mm-hmm. E9, chief, ma- senior chief and master chief, you're just god, god senior and god master. <laughs> and my dad was a master chief. And he taught me, you have to put it, you have to speak plainly and you have to speak bluntly because the screw up that you're going to be ordered to do will be your responsibility if you didn't, what we say, drop your anchors, because our little symbol is the anchor. And I've gotten to a couple of times with this administration where I've literally thrown my anchors down. That means I've had enough of this. And the first one was when he insulted Kazir Khan, the father of, of Humayim Khan, Captain, Captain Khan, a man that gave his life when he saw that his... Well, dude, he was on headquarters company at an army base and was doing a routine watch section patrol. And he saw that car bomb come and he told the men, get behind the blast wall. And he took seven steps before he was, dis- he was killed in that suicide bombing, knowing he wanted to keep his men out of harm. And he decided he was going to check this car out himself. And Kazir Khan, whom I've met, his father, who is a d- deep American patriot, um, you know, the guy who said, here's my pocket constitution. Right, right. Kazir Khan said in his eulogy of his son, I believed every one of those seven steps was a, a step where he was reaffirming his belief and love in the United States to the moment he gave his life for this nation. That is hardcore mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, soldiering right there. And Donald Trump insulted him and his mother, okay? That's where I get angry. I mean, I will not stand for it. God forbid I be in the presence of Donald Trump and he says something stupid, which is almost a guarantee. (laughs) Right. So that gets me mad. With good reason. With good reason. I don't know your politics. I don't know if you're a Democrat or Republican. I frankly assume that a lot of people on MSNBC are a Democrat, which is a faulty assumption, okay? It is. Um, I'm an independent. Many of our audience are independent, unaffiliated, or really consider you know their, their country ahead of their party. You've been 
critical, I think appropriately, of many of the Democratic candidates. This week, they will take the stage. Yeah. What do you see? What are you, what are you watching for? And is there anybody that you think can handle this challenge? Well, first, let me, let me touch on that. I was a Republican most of my career. I was a Colin Powell-style, hard on national defense and national security and relatively squishy on, you know, social things. I, I was never a hardcore, you know, hard right, you know, John Bolton, let's invade every country person. You know, I loved our commanders who, who set the pace. Schwarzkopf. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Schwarzkopf's speech to West Point. It's one of the most brilliant speeches ever given in military history. It's on par with anything Eisenhower has ever said. Um, and, and so, and, and, and these guys believed in patriotism was maintaining the norms and the dignity of the nation. So I, st I started as a Republican. And then it was the, it was the Monica Lewinsky thing. It was just like, hey, we're going to impeach the president over consensual, you know, sex. I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble <laughs> if we're going to get impeached over that. But I'm going to speak now. To, on, on your question, but I want the people who are Trump supporters to listen to this, okay? Here's what I'm loyal to, one thing and one thing only, and this will lead to my answer about the Democrats. I am loyal to the Constitution of the United States and nothing else. I'm from Philadelphia, okay? <laughs> I lived close to where this nation was founded. Whenever I, you know, the funny thing is there's a little, there's a little plaza behind Independence Mall, a, a park, called Washington Square. And there, it used to be an African-American cemetery. And in the Revolutionary War, so many men were dying of disease, uh, it was turned into a, uh, a mass grave. Mm -hmm. And there are a thousand unknown soldiers in that cemetery buried from the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War. And there is the original unknown soldier tomb is there, a statue of Washington, and above it, it says, um, uh, freedom is a light for which many men have died in darkness. And I, that sent me into my intelligence career. But I take their death seriously. Mm -hmm. This nation was founded on this. So when I think about what are the Dems going to do here today, there's only one thing they should be arguing about. Will we save the American Republic? Will we save the democracy that has been founded? And by the way, for those of you who come up and say, hey, man, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. <laughs> A republic is a democracy in which the rights of the minority party are defended. Okay? All you Socrates out there. <laughs> so, you know... So when you look at the stage, right? Well, and and you, this week you were, you were very critical of Cory Booker. Yeah. And I think appropriately so. I discussed this in the opening to this show yeah. about how you can always count on the Democrats to eat their own. Sure. Right? And, and the Democrats often fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Republicans are stockpiling money behind Trump right now preparing yeah. for war and the Democrats look like, you know, the early days of the Iraq war, different tribes fighting with each other. Yeah. Right. While the, while the city burns. So, so again, you know, does anybody emerge here as, as above it? And you know, how, how do you look at this field, man? Well, first off, 24 people is crazy. Uh, you know, Tom Perez said that we have a really deep bench and they're all better than Donald Trump. That's true. Okay, with one exception. There's one person who I don't support at all there. Um, who is that person? That's Tulsi Gabbard. Why? Well, first off, her politics are crazy. Uh, when, when Syria was burning 
you know, she was out there speaking relatively positively about ending the war and maybe Assad should be, you know, why are we getting involved in Assad's thing? Assad was committing mass murder. That's why we were getting involved in this thing. And then viewing Russia as some sort of stabilizing force, I don't care. I've listened to her. My switches go off. To me, she's the Jill Stein of this thing. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if the Russians backed her to run as an independent. Mm. And I'm so, hoping she'll come on this show. I, that's, uh, I want to you know, ask her I don't want to hear this. She was a combat veteran or she was a veteran thing. Well, it's, right? it's important to me. It's important to many people, but I think it doesn't absolve her of responsibility on those issues. And, and I know and she's I think, since made statements that have sort of refuted that look. Okay, sure. no one asked Tulsi Gabbard to run for president. Sure, sure. You know, okay, the people so who were strong, I'm hoping she'll though. come on the show. I think she, she's offered to come on the show, so I'm hoping we can ask her these questions. Sure. Tulsi's off your Christmas card list. No, no. Okay, not but, you, Tulsi. And it sounds like after this week, I think you said publicly, Cory Booker, Cory is, Booker is off your Christmas card Cory list. Cory Booker is off my Christmas card list because... Because he attacked Biden. Yeah, he broke the Reagan rule, right? That's what the Republicans say, the 11th commandment. Right. Thou shalt not attack another Republican. Well, I think we need that 11th commandment. His attack against Biden was, it wasn't that he, he recognized something which was valid, right? It's that he spent five days hammering it every day. In he's, the press. At the press. He's at 2% and he's decided, I'm going to hurt him personally. And so I tweeted about that. My tweet was very simple. You're done, right? I've gotten to like making official rulings, right? Because I've got three quarters, almost three quarters of a million followers. So, you know, it was him. Um, so of the ones left standing, who do you feel can be, you know, A, if your mission is to, is to stop Trump, who do you think is the best bet? There are four heavies, I Please. think, right now. Um, and the four heavies that I think that could really have a good chance of becoming president. Clearly, Biden, Biden could walk away with the thing, but suddenly the media has decided the old rules of how you cover people, the way they covered Hillary Clinton, only applies to Democrats, and Donald Trump can do anything and say anything. Right. On the same day that this guy was getting hammered, Biden was getting hammered by Booker, Trump was being called out as a rapist. Right. And the media barely covered it, right. and we're going after this African-American right. thing. So, Okay, so Biden, Biden's one. Who are your other three? Kamala Harris okay. could easily be president of the United States. Okay, who else? Uh, Elizabeth Warren could easily be president of the United States. Um, and, 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 and is now showing her smarts the right way. For a long time, I didn't like her. And then I started, you know, listening to her. Right. Um, and then I, I, I'm reserving the fourth spot after tonight to see if there's going to be a breakout candidate. Okay. Because you never know. I mean, Hickenlooper could come out and suddenly be the, you know, be the apostle everybody has been, been waiting for. I don't know. There's, there's now two Navy veterans running. So since last we recorded, uh, Admiral Joe Sestak, who uh, uh, served in Congress from Pennsylvania yeah. uh, and has run for office before, is now declared he's running, which is... Um, you know, surprising late. to say the least and a little bit late. So you got to question his, his strategic initiative uh, and, and, and foresight there. But, uh, and Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete was a Navy Intel yeah, guy Navy for Intel a short guy. period of time, yeah. very short period of time, went through this interesting commissioning route that now Rince Priebus has gone through, right? A very similar. Yeah. But similar, but the guy can speak like seven languages, right? and, you know, he's a cryptological officer. Right. So as a Navy and, guy, how do you yeah. feel about Mayor Pete? Well, I think Mayor Pete's a great guy. And, uh, but to be quite honest, this week has shown that, you know, he's got his own issues 
that he needs to go back to, you know, South Bend or wherever his town is yeah. and resolve those issues. It shows that he's he's just not ready to be president of the United These States. These are the, the issues around racial division. Racial divisions in his own town. And when you get the town screaming you out on national television— right. You've got handling of local issues and policing and and some of the, some of the more important issues. So, you know, and another thing is, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged black guy, right? And according to the statistics, I should be supporting Joe Biden. Well, that's right. You know, I, I I do support Biden somewhat, but I'm completely agnostic right now. I'll go with whoever, whoever comes out punching. And this is the problem. Trump has learned to dominate what we call in information warfare, the meta-narrative. Right. No collusion, no obstruction. I'm the greatest. That's it. That's all he says. He speaks in five year old terms because a person listening will only hear those terms. The Democrats who come out and will frame him properly, which is continuing criminal enterprise. Right. Moron. Right. Worst president in American history. And of course, insane narcissist. Every one of those things is true and provable. I mean, the man's a pathological liar. He is now documented to have told over 11,000 quantifiable lies. And so your political strategy is, is also grounded in intelligence and in, in information warfare. Yeah. And you feel that this, this, is, this is the way to win. If you were as an intelligence warfare and cryptological expert, if you were the, you know, the James Carville of this situation and you were advising the Democrats, that's the playbook you would have them run. It's not even information warfare. It's, it, that's the old chief's handbook, Okay, the uh, old which chief's is, handbook. which is, you know, you say something to me, no collusion, no obstruction. I'm going to go back and I'm going to call out and reframe you. Yeah. And that reframing is this. Excuse me, you idiot. Did you just say something? Because we all know you are the stupidest man on the stage and you just hustled 77,000 Americans. And for the next two year, I'm going to call you out for the idiot that you are. And Americans understand frankness yeah. and truth. Yeah, it's just it. that you have to be able to understand especially those of you who were like me, who were, who were conservative and in the military, you have to look into yourself and understand, are you just going along with him because he's part of your tribe, the leader mm-hmm. of your tribe, mm-hmm. or are you standing for what we all stand for? So I, I want to pull on a thread that we touched on that, we, that we, we don't talk enough about in American media and in politics, which is the issue of race. Yes. And can you give me, and I, I you know, this is a big question, but... What, what is your, we talk a lot about race in America. Yeah. We, we don't talk much about race in the military. Yeah. And given your very unique position and now your, your high profile position, can you break it down? What is your view? Where, where are we? Are, are, when it comes to, let's simplify and say race relations. Yeah. Is the military better or worse than the civilian world? Oh, the military is way better than the civilian world. But that doesn't mean that there's problems. Look, I worked in buildings with no windows. Uh, office, there's not problems. Offices yeah, yeah, yeah. with no doors right. where you couldn't get into that small cubicle without a cipher lock, right? You have top secret SCI clearance. I had open racism thrown at me in, in that environment. In fact, somebody on, on some, some guy who claimed to have known me, who I'd never met in my life, um, came out there and said, all he did is spent 20 years filing racism, you know, complaints. And I thought, Y'all need to go look at my DD-214 or that picture with my medals. 
clearly I did not sit around talking about race all day. Right. I was blowing things up that needed to get blowed up. So, you know, but I think it's a little different in the combat arms. Which, which included at times people who were racist in the military. Well, Sometimes yeah. they need to be, you know. Well, I had one guy leave. Administratively blown yeah, up I had, as well. I, I had one guy leave openly openly racist package on my desk with an object and the n-word written across it this i was an e7 i was a chief in the navy all right that's like that's like touching the sun and this guy thought this guy was an e6 and he thought that he would get approval from the other white chiefs by insulting me the hammer came down on him so hard and so fast but you know what? What was they, the what was the object? I ain't gonna say. Okay. But okay. you know, it was just it was just some offensive object. Okay. But they even pulled their punch at the end, so he was going to get ad administratively separated, uh, but he was soon to retire because it's just one of those, you know, when you get a guy who's like an eighteen year E six, you already know there's a problem, right? Yeah. That's a meaning he hadn't been promoted. He hadn't been he's promoted. Kind of stuck in a job. Yeah. Yeah, and so they didn't bring me to his non judicial punishment to testify. And I thought, that's unusual. I should have been the first witness, right? So they, they administratively separated him. They didn't but bring him in because they were protecting him. They were protecting him to a yeah. certain extent because if I had spoken, it would have been, he would have been kicked out of the Navy completely, mm. no retirement, blah, blah, blah. So he, got allowed, he was allowed to retire. But in the end, those things didn't deter me. My dad was... 15 years old and on a troop ship going to an invasion zone with 10,000 white soldiers on it as a black mess maid, you know, mess boy. Okay? You want to, how much racism do you think he got mm. transiting the Pacific? Mm. And then, you know, there was no racism when those Japanese planes were coming, right? Mm. He was the guy humping the ammo up from the weapons locker. Suddenly, you know, I need manpower. When we are in the armed forces, we understand the mission requires technical competence and manpower. There, that, was an, that was an alarm right. going off. Yeah. So, we are well protected here. We've and, had to increase security here at the car club because <laughs> Malcolm is here. New way. He has many haters. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you must because it's a whole other level of combat. Um, but, let, me, but, let me make a quick point but, but on please, that. Please, if you could. It wasn't just yeah. race. It was also... It was also Discrimination against gays, discrimination against women. I actually got called in one time to counsel someone because I was a chief. And I was like, who? And he goes, this guy. I won't mention his name because he works at NSA now. And he, I was like, why? And he goes, he's gay. I never noticed. You know why? Because I was busy doing my job. And I opened his folder. And I didn't really know what kind of a linguist he was. He wasn't really deploying on a lot of missions. Because when I opened his folder, I found this guy was like native PhD level linguist. I didn't even know this level existed, right? I was like, you're like freaking Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. This guy could speak near fluent Arabic at a doctorate level. And I thought, I, I looked at it and I was like, what are you doing now? He goes, oh, they, they pulled me off the line and they had just had me transcribing tapes. Mm. And I was like, Go back to transcribing. Mm -hmm. Get out of my office. You're mm -hmm. a level five linguist, mm -hmm. you know? And, it, and they came and they said, did you counsel him? I'm like, no, I didn't counsel him. I sent his happy ass back to work, which is my philosophy. 
get to effing work right? I don't care if you're straight. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're a man. I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care if you're trans. If I need a job done, you will do that job, right? To the best of your ability. And I will help you do that job. But I don't, I have, when I finally went into combat, first Gulf War, and I went ashore, okay? And there were a million landmines strewn everywhere. I had no other linguist with me because they didn't want to let people go because they were firing gay linguists before the invasion of Iraq, right? right? And they all got hired by the National Security Agency or the CIA mm -hmm. because once they were out, they didn't have a problem with mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. I needed a level five linguist. Mm -hmm. Do you think I had one? No, I had to put up with myself. Mm -hmm. This is where we waste manpower. Same thing as if you got a saw gunner Right. If you had a trans person, I mean, let's look at Chief Kristen Beck, right? Senior Chief Kristen Beck, Navy SEAL, right? Transgendered uh, lady. You know what? When it comes time to do that team guy stuff, right? Blowy things up and shooty people. You're not asking, oh, excuse me, before you go, before you start laying down a base of fire, are you gay or straight? Right. No, it's like you better it lay down a base it, of it, fire. It, the, the old saying is it doesn't matter if you are straight, it matters if you shoot straight. If you shoot straight. And, and I think that's a powerful and important message and perspective, especially during Pride Month, where the president continues to push a hateful, um, backward, um, really counterproductive to our national security trans ban that yeah. I've been openly critical of, you've been openly critical of, many other people have been critical of, and I hope to go deeper on in a future show. Yeah. I also want to have you come back on to talk about Russia because we okay. could do hours on that. But every week I ask uh, guests the same question. We've gone into a lot of heavy shit, Malcolm. Can I make but one quick question please? about pride? Go ahead. Here's my pride. Navy pride. Yes. Right? Beat Army. That's my only philosophy. I don't care what you are. You and I are getting along are. so well, but now we have to draw a line between my us. And for folks who are wondering, Malcolm did not have a cocktail today, um, we, as, as is sometimes the, the custom, but he does have a double espresso. Double espresso. So this man, you know, it, it functions mm. at a very high speed, a very high level. My great great grandfather and was Army. My okay. great-great-granduncle so was an army. army. My grandfather was Army. The My only time I, the Army probably really favors the Navy folks is when they need coffee. Right? Yeah, and the Navy guys always have better coffee. But let's go to something about you. Okay. I ask every guest, we've talked in depth about what makes you angry. Yeah. But you are a guy who loves life. You, yeah. love, you, you, know, you love your family. You love the outdoors. Um, you love your country. But what's something that makes you happy? You know. Beyond all this, you're in politics, you're in the news, you also have a very rich life outside of your work. What's something that really makes you happy at your core? I'm going to tell you guys something funny, and this is very personal. Um, my, my wife's French-Canadian, uh, and actually she's an American citizen. She was born in West Lafayette, Indiana, and then went home for 42 years, right? Wow. <laughs> so she has this huge French accent. Um, when I came back from Iraq... Uh, unlike you, you were, you were active. I was an intelligence subcontractor. And I actually went there to, to do private security at first, and then I got brought out to do other things with other people. And so while I was doing that, I was riding around Iraq in a BMW 750i. Hmm. Right. That was my that was hmm. my that was my pers armored personnel. That's not what I had. <laughs> Unarmored personnel vehicle. Well, you know, if you. Then again, you didn't have to go out in the middle of the night to safe houses to check on the guards because they claimed they saw a genie. 
True. <laughs> true. <laughs> you true. Know, that was true. that was the most dangerous thing I did in Iraq was get in a BMW at 3 a.m. Mm. Right? And I was like, hellfires are coming. Okay. I'm going to have an AC-130. It's going to shred me any minute now. Okay. So when I got back from my, my from Iraq, and I worked in Iraq on and off over 10 years, by the way, um, the first time I was there for a year, and uh, I came home to Washington. I was getting married. Um, and the decompression process was so different than when I was in the military. When you're in the military, you come back to a base, you have all your debriefs, you, you, know, you turn in your equipment, then you go back to work on Monday in some slough job. This was civilian subcontractor life. Uh, I came back, did my debriefs and everything, and then it's like, oh, going home now, play with the Beagles. Um, my wife took me out to breakfast in, in Adams Morgan, you, you might know that in yep, D.C. In D.C., yep. You know Cafe Trist I don't, in D.C.? There's a cafe there called Cafe Trist. And next door is a diner called Diner. And I sat down there, and I started having corned beef hash. Mm. And I realized, I, I just started, I didn't even know I was crying. I was crying in this place. And she's just like, what's the matter? I go, I'm in a safe place. Mm. I'm safe. I'm safe. I mean, that's what I kept saying. Mm. It's just like. There's no car bombs are going to go off here. I was constantly primed for car bombs. I've been in the blast radius of three suicide car bombs, including the famous Assassin's Gate. I was in line when the Assassin's Gate car bomb went down, and I was in an armored Jeep Cherokee, and I didn't know that the bomb had gone off till the two people in front of me literally tumbled away, right? And I thought we had been hit by a truck. So I just thought, holy cow, that night she took me to Cirque du Soleil. Wow. Right? And I the, thought the corned beef hash was going to be was going to no. be the surprise, but there's even more. In the middle okay. of Cirque du Soleil, I was so overwhelmed with happiness. Cirque du Soleil's Alegria, by the way, which is the best of all Cirque du Soleil's. And um, I just was, the word is ebullient, right? Where happiness ebullient. bubbles up in you. And I was like... <sighs> You know, I, I don't go it. back to the safe house tonight. I, love I don't have to strap nothing on me. There's no grenades on me. There's, you know, I don't have to do weapons checks in the morning. And I definitely don't have to wake up the goddamn guard. So, you know, so, the Iraqis, I, I only work with Iraqis. So that's, that was the happiest moment, you know, other than my wedding. But the happiest moment in the last 20 years. Thank you for sharing that. That's yes. really, I think it's inspiring and it's beautiful and I hope it gives people a lot of perspective. I want to I wanna finish with, with a question I haven't asked you yet okay. because you are a very fascinating guy. Um, what w- Mar- Malcolm Nance, mm. what was your first car? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I wish it was something sexy. So it wasn't. Uh, I, was, I was stationed at NSA and uh, I just hated getting the shuttle bus. So I was like, I'm going to learn to drive. <laughs> so I had to learn to drive with my, my brother who lived in Alexandria, taught me to drive. And then I went out and I bought, what year was that? 1985 Honda Accord, right? I took a safe car. Wow. They're sexy now, you know, but back then they were like these, 
They were like mommy movers. What color was it? It was champagne, man, because that was the Sh- cheap. That was the cheap cover color. <laughs> champagne, <right>? champagne colored <laughs> 1985 Honda Accord. Did you ever think that when you were driving around that champagne Honda Accord years later, you'd be in a BMW flying around in Iraq? Jesus Christ! I'm telling you, the most dangerous you and I know. The most dangerous thing you could do in Iraq is get in a vehicle. That's true. Yeah. All right, but. Yeah. I did have some good cars out there. I, I you, you know, I had Jeb Bush's armored, uh, armored Ford Expedition. No, Excursion, the I big one. Know that. And it was this huge six-ton armored vehicle that we had bought. And I used to do the I used to do the Green Zone to the airport run down Route Irish. Wow. And I used to take that, and I, I would do that run personally. I was head of security for a U.S. government subcontractor. And I would do that run personally. You had to put on all your armor, uh-huh. your helmet, and everything. And I had a minimum speed on Route Irish, 100 miles per hour. I would get this six-ton armored per, armored luxury limousine up to 100. I wish, vi- there, I wish there was video of that. It would start vibrating at 100 miles per we hour. We have to do, if, if, you'll, <laughs> if you'll allow us, after this show, we'll have to post on Twitter whatever pictures of all these many You've got the widest got spectrum some. of interesting vehicles of any guests we've had on, on so far. So I'm so That's glad crazy. we dug I'm in this. I'm not a car guy. Yeah, I but just it, got you, cars. You got even the pictures you were showing me on your phone today are pretty fucking amazing. I mean, the six wheel thing is bonkers. We'll, we'll, if you're comfortable, we'll post a picture of that. But um, before we wrap, what has been a fascinating and dynamic conversation. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time, especially given all that's going on in the world. We haven't checked our phones, which is good because I don't want to know what's going on outside for, for a little while. But as is tradition, I have some gifts for you. Uh, and I will, I will start with the, with the easy ones. Um, are these, are these lady shoes? No, they're not lady <laughs> shoes. You're giving Malcolm a black bag and inside, um, we have some of the, the brand new Angry Americans merchandise. Oh, we swag. now have blue and red. Again, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Made in the USA by veterans. So, Malcolm, I hope you'll enjoy those this summer when you're driving your vehicle or you're hanging out upstate. Um, big shout out <laughs> to like the guys from, from Oscar Mike. Um, and then also in the bag. Angry. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that's appropriate. It says angry on the front. We've also got some new ones that kind of look like a flag that have the lightning bolts. I like it. Very That'll, comfortable. Check them out. That eclipses my real time with Bill Maher t-shirt. Yeah, I mean, I haven't told people this, but uh, Bill Maher takes good care of guests. Yes, he does. I mean, most guests... Oh, peeps, ho- hold yo. on with the peeps. Bill, Bill Maher actually is... When, the only time I flew first class two times in my, in my life for a long period was, was to Iraq. Yeah. And to Bill Maher, because HBO flew me out first class, and they would have a guy always pick me up who was a, a Russian vet from Afghanistan. Yeah. And he would pick me up at the airport, and Bill Maher, love him or hate him, they take, they take good care of their guests. And Wait. the party afterward is not to yeah, be missed it's either. not bad. Right? Wait, but you thought a C-17 was first class? No. <laughs> No, no. I'm an army guy. I didn't know the difference. And then last, so you, now you've got the peeps. I got peeps. Every, He's got every, peeps, every guest this season Look has gotten to choose between yellow, blue, or pink peeps. And I ran out of blue. So what would you pink, yellow, blue, or pink, Malcolm, and why? In terms of peeps? Yeah. Oh, I'm this a hard, is, I'm a hard you, you know, you're, 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 you're an intelligence analyst guy. I'm a traditionalist, you know, tells us though, about man. you. You got to go with yellow peeps. 
because yellow peeps are exactly it. I think I've got some three-year-old yellow peeps in my house because you know what? These are apocalypse food. This, <laughs> this is everyday <laughs> carry. This will last for years. And you know what the best combat meal in the world? No. When, you know, when you get your care packages? No. My wife and kids sent me like bunches of care packages in Iraq, right? So what is the best S combat meal? Stale peeps yeah. in a hot cup of coffee. Stale peeps and hot You know, Sarah Jessica Parker called the yellow peeps the OG of peeps. That's right, OG. And now you've called it, you know, the ultimate survival food. That's right. So now the worlds are coming again. And lastly... Wait, I get both, right? Yes, sir. Hell and yeah. lastly, we have uh, every week oh. I pick an American-made product, um, and I go to the liquor store, and I try to find something that speaks to me for this guest. And one of the things I know about you is that you are very passionate about the upstate region of New York. I am. And it is blossoming for folks that don't know. It's, it's become this new landscape, and it's where, you know. A lot know, of distilleries. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of, lot of distilleries. So I came up with a, with a choice that I think would speak to you. It looks like gin. It looks like gin, but it's not gin. Oh, Hudson, New York corn whiskey. All so right. it's a New York made whiskey. Cow, powerful this stuff. This is great. Alcohol. It's powerful stuff for a man <laughs> with a powerful mind. And it comes from your area. And I'm reading the history of the Hudson whiskey yeah. and, and learning that, that corn grain whiskey is something that used to be a, a founding part of our history. Absolutely. And so I hope you enjoy that this summer. I, I have a liquor cabinet. It's actually a liquor chest in my dining room you must if, if, and i've got liquor from all over the world i have cookery i have cookery uh whiskey from nepal i have uh like scorpion i want to do a show from, from your house and we can just do Dude, liquor tasting from malcolm's adventure i'm gonna tell you a, a funny story before we go please i don't have a man cave i have a man skiff a man skiff it says man skiff and goat locker on the on the for civilians tell them what that means a, a skiff is a sensitive compartmented information facility it's where all the spies hang and so i got a man skiff and when it's done it'll actually be rated the secret all right so i would love I, and I I, maybe maybe, maybe next season we can do the show now. from deep inside that secure area and we can go through your whiskey collection but on a very serious note malcolm i'm grateful for you joining us um, you are a great example of why this show exists. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. You are paying very astute attention to the most important issues facing our country and facing our globe. You've been a voice of truth. You've been challenging power and you, you've really dedicated your life to service and, and uh, your, your history, your family history, I think is an inspiration for all Americans. And I'm humbled to have you here, especially as we go into July 4th. Uh, and I'm just grateful for you, man. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and, and for all you do. Thank you. It's great to be a very angry American. <laughs> and follow Malcolm on Twitter. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a ferocious and entertaining uh, world that he engages in. He does not shy away from fights. Your books, can you tell people about your books, where they can find them? Yeah. The three books on Russia, are, the first one's Plot to Hack America. That came out six weeks before the election. And if you'd like to see how the intelligence process works, I predicted everything that's in the Mueller report before the election, and it was actually published on the same day that the CIA turned in an identical report to President Obama. Wow. Except that my, I called the Russian operation Operation Lucky 7. They called it Operation Grizzly Step, which is actually a better name. Uh, and then there's the plot to betray, uh, no, the plot to destroy democracy, how Putin and his spies are damaging America and dismantling the West. And the new one comes out this fall, the Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Compromised National Security. 
and so those are my three books on Trump Russia. I have six other books on counterterrorism and uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, two, you know, three of my books have been on the Times bestsellers list. So uh, go go get those. We'll but, post them on the Angry Americans website, yeah. angryamericans.us, and on all our social media properties. And we'll continue to share all of Malcolm's important work. Thank you again, man. My pleasure. Uh, bro. I hope you have an awesome summer, despite the fact that we're on the verge of war. At least we will have lots of peeps okay. and corned beef and some damn good liquor. And, may, and, it, and may, if things start really getting crazy, I may have to come up to your house. Since we're getting recalled to active duty, let's go hit that range. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're, we're gonna go hit the range and get ready for recall active duty thank you for joining us for an awesome conversation with the great malcolm nance all right you know the deal every show i offer a way of converting your understandable anger into positive action a righteous action the show's angry Americans can also be impactful Americans, an action that'll make you feel good and will make a difference. Over the last few months, many of you have taken action to support our 9-11 first responders and the extension of the Victims' Compensation Fund. If you're new to the show, go back and check out episodes 2 and 11 with 9-11 hero Rob Sarah. Well, here's an update. It's passed in the House, and this week, Rob Sarah and others finally met with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Rob sent us an update. Here it is. What's up, Angry Americans? We're here live in Washington, D.C. after a great day up on the Hill. We went with the Senate Majority Leader, Mr. McConnell, and he assured us that he's going to get this bill passed by August. That's great news. And for more updates, check us out tomorrow morning live on Fox and Friends at 645. See you then. Thank you. So don't hold it against Rob that he's going on Fox and Friends, but the good news is maybe by August. By August, we could have this done. That's too damn slow. So keep on him. And also, remember, no matter how this goes down, Mitch McConnell was wrong. He had to be shamed into doing the right thing. And next year, he's up for re-election. So remember this summer. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, or Independent. I think you can recognize that Mitch McConnell is a pathetic leader who failed our 9-11 first responders and failed America. And there should be a price to pay for that. So I plan to support whoever runs against him in Kentucky in 2020 from any party. It might be a guy named Matt Jones. He's a sports broadcaster from the area who is well-known in Kentucky. It could be Amy McGrath, a former Marine Corps fighter pilot and the first female Marine to fly an F-18 in combat mission. Healthcare professional Stephen Cox of Madisonville or jazz musician J. Bernie Smith of Louisville are also declared Democratic candidates in that race. And to spice things up, Actor George Takai, who starred in the original Star Trek series, also tweeted that he's tempted to relocate to the Bluegrass State just to run against Mitch McConnell. Well, maybe we can get Rob Sarah to consider moving from Staten Island to Kentucky to run against Mitch McConnell. Hashtag draft Rob. They'd all have my vote, but I can't vote in Kentucky. But I can drive attention in dollars, and I plan to do both. Never forget was the tagline after 9-11. And Mitch McConnell, he forgot. But me and other 9-11 first responders and our supporters and angry Americans like you everywhere, we're the ones that will never forget. So start watching the Kentucky Senate race now. That's action item number one for this episode. And I got another piece of homework for you. Action item number two. It's to help make your summer just a little bit better. 
nothing's more American than rock and roll. And it's been a home for angry Americans of all kinds for generations now. And there's some damn good new rock and roll that I highly recommend. Listen to the Tours new album, Help Us Stranger. It's the first album from these guys in over a decade. The Tours are Jack White in the gang. Jack White from the White Stripes and Brendan Benson on vocals and keyboards and guitars and Greenhorns drummer Patrick Keeler, along with bassist Jack Lawrence. They're amazing. I played for you, but apparently I need their permission, which is why I can't play music that I want on this show more often. But I'm working on that. So in the meantime, if you know Jack White, please ask him respectfully if I can play his genius work on this show. And while you're at it, tell him I'd love to have him as a guest on this show. How amazing would that be? But that's your second action item. Listen to the new record from the Tours. You're welcome. One more thing. Watch our amazing women's soccer team. They play Friday, 3 p.m. against France. Even if you're not a soccer fan, they're a team we can all be proud of. They're fierce, they're tough, and they're amazing. And now, Trump has stupidly picked a fight with Megan Rapino, their star who scored two goals against Spain this week. That gives us even more reason to watch. He's attacking her and questioning her patriotism, as he does with many who challenge or criticize him. But Rapino's a badass and a patriot and an angry American. And she's definitely welcome on this show anytime. But watch her and the other women kick ass and hopefully win the whole thing. They'll give us something uniquely American to root for this summer and a great way to bring Americans together. So check it out. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, use the hashtag angry Americans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, another great show is in the books. And big thanks to some folks who helped make this episode happen as we continue to storm into the summer. Malcolm Nance, our amazing guest. Check out his books, follow him on Twitter, look for him on MSNBC. Eric Schonborn continues to kick out cool and awesome things and is the mastermind behind angryamericans.us. Check out our website. Lots of cool stuff there and extra content. Chris Rosenthal, who continues to make killer videos for us on Instagram and Twitter. Ben Stoffer who does all the video support and shot the video with Malcolm that you can find up on the Angry Americans website and on YouTube in a couple of days. Mercy Rich for all the good vibes and smart help already. Bill Schultz for magnificently producing this episode and working his magic. Starfish Media for the studio and recording help, especially Patrick Conway and our friend Soledad O'Brien. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. They're supporting this episode. You should support them. Skip Trump's 4th of July parade and buy some American-made merch from them. We've got new items. We've got blue. We've got red. We've got very cool new designs. Incredibly comfortable. Check them out at angryamericans.us. Thank you to Righteous Media, our new company for powering this whole operation. And a new thing we started a few weeks back. I want to thank some listeners. Every week, I'll thank a few Angry Americans for listening. First up, Kim Fisher. She's on Twitter at KimFisherDC. Uh, she is from Washington, D.C., and she said, After listening to Angry Americans, I agree with Paul Rykoff. Politicians that give blank promises but no plan does nothing for me. I like anyone who has a plan. Just give me something to work with more than adjectives. She's from Washington, D.C. She also says in her bio, Take a private tour with me at Arlington Cemetery and learn more about the heroes who fought and died in response to 9-11. So big shout out to Kim Fisher. Thanks for listening. Elizabeth. No last name, which is kind of mysterious, perfect for the Malcolm episode, but she's on Twitter at Half Pint Pirate. 
She joined Twitter in November 2012 and was apparently born in 1980. No other information is provided. But she wrote on Twitter, just finishing up the interview with Ethan Nadelman on Angry Americans, and it was so interesting. The godfather of drug reform and activism, breaking down cannabis and the healing powers of ayahuasca, not just on that hippie plane, but the actual science behind it. So big shout out to Elizabeth, Half Pint Pirate, and thank you for checking out that episode of Ethan Nadelman. Uh, If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it last week. It's fascinating. Uh, And our last listener of the week, Elizabeth Crouch, who is a wellness uh, first health educator from Edmonds, Washington. Big shout out to Elizabeth, who wrote, join Paul Rykoff and Angry Americans for rock solid information, intelligent conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you all. We appreciate all the support. Give us a shout on Twitter using the hashtag Angry Americans, and maybe we'll shout you out next week. And as always, thanks to my family my amazing wife and two boys. Our baby is four months old and he is smiling and laughing now. And that's just about the best thing ever. Most of all, as always, my thanks to you for tuning in. If you dig the show, please tell your friends to check it out. Follow us at getangry.us. You can go directly to the podcast or you can go to angryamericans.us. Be sure to subscribe, tell all your friends. And if you're on an Apple device and you like the show, please leave a quick review. And a reminder, if you have SiriusXM, check me out this Friday, June 28th, 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern, and replaying at 7 to 9 Eastern. I'll be filling in again for my friend Chris Cuomo live on the radio. I'll also be on the mic again next Monday, July 1st. So check us out on SiriusXM channel 124 if you subscribe. Uh, If not, look for clips on angryamericans.us and on social media. I'll try to push out as much as I can. I'll have a recap of the first two nights of the Democratic debates. We'll have a preview on Trump's crazy-ass Fourth of July parade. We'll talk Women's World Cup. We'll talk Iran. We'll talk a lot about what's going on in the world. It's live on the radio. Check us out this week and in weeks to come. As always, give me a holler online, anywhere on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Carrier Pigeon, we're there. Give us a holler and we'll holler back. And remember, it's okay to be angry. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. America.